Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Michelle Fisher Young. But first, your true crime headlines. In Pensacola, a suspect has been identified in the city's oldest cold case thanks to genealogy. 57-year-old Daniel Leonard Wells was arrested and charged with first-degree murder and first-degree sexual assault for the New Year's Day 1985 murder of Tanya Etheridge McKinley. The 23-year-old woman was last seen around 1.30 a.m. at Daryl's Bar and Grill in Pensacola, and her strangled and partially nude body was found hours later in a vacant lot not far from the highway. She had been sexually assaulted before her death, and police collected samples of semen and pubic hair from the scene of the crime. Police were able to identify Wells as their suspect with the help of Parabon Nanolabs, a Virginia-based tech company that has assisted law enforcement in solving numerous other high-profile cold cases around the country. Investigators took a DNA sample from the crime scene and built a genetic profile of their suspect, which was then uploaded onto an open-source genealogy platform. After determining that Wells was the probable source of the DNA sample, police conducted surveillance on Wells and collected a discarded cigarette butt which was tested against the crime scene DNA and confirmed to be a match. Wells is being held without bail as he awaits his first court appearance. The state of Texas has issued a 60-day stay of execution for condemned family killer John William Hummel, who was scheduled to die in the state's death chamber on March 18th. Hummel, 44, was convicted of capital murder in the December 2009 stabbing of his pregnant wife, Joy Hummel, 45, and a fatal bludgeoning of his father-in-law, 57-year-old Clyde Bedford. Though he was only charged with the murders of his wife and father-in-law, he is also believed to have beaten his five-year-old daughter, Jody Hummel, to death before setting fire to the family's home in suburban Fort Worth. Citing the enormous resources needed to carry out an execution, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals issued a stay due to the viral pandemic COVID-19, which Hummel's attorneys argued could be spread if the execution was carried out as scheduled. Numerous people take part in an execution, including witnesses, attorneys, doctors, and corrections officers. Putting all of these people in close quarters to carry out the execution would present a substantial risk of transmission if anyone was infected, argued Hummel's attorney, Michael Mola. In Los Angeles, the coronavirus pandemic has delayed the long-awaited murder trial of Robert Durst, who is facing murder charges for the murder of his friend Susan Berman in 2000. Superior Court Judge Mark Windham announced the three-week delay after the head judge in Los Angeles County recommended that all trials be delayed for 30 days if possible, and that no new jurors be summoned. Durst's trial had been underway for six days and is expected to take five months. The judge's order delays the proceedings until April 6th, though it could be delayed even further after California's governor issued a safe-at-home order for the state's 40 million residents, which is scheduled to remain in place until mid-April. Durst, the 76-year-old heir to a Manhattan real estate fortune, 
was the subject of the hit HBO docuseries, The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. He has pleaded not guilty to the charges. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Michelle Fisher-Young. But first, a quick break. It's hard to stick to your health and weight loss goals when you're quarantined during a global pandemic. Maybe your New Year's resolution was to head out to the gym more. That's too bad. Look, don't worry. Noom is here to help. Noom is the fitness app that knows that there are many reasons to practice self-care, and everyone is different. Noom helped me personalize a new fitness plan to keep me on track now that I'm social distancing from my personal trainer. And I'm doing it all from the safety of my toilet paper bunker. This app is not a diet. Noom teaches you why you make the decisions you make to help you build better habits based on your goals. Noom helps you keep track of everything from workouts and steps to analyzing what you're eating and recommending healthy recipes. No food is good, bad, or off-limits. So whatever you're stockpiling, Noom will help you make it work. Right now, Noom is teaching me how to stop myself from stress-eating all of my quarantine rations for the week in one day. That's because Noom is based in psychology. This app teaches me why I do the things I do and arms me with the tools I need to break the bad habits and replace them with better ones. Look, Noom understands that you have a lot on your mind. You don't have to change it all overnight. And just because you're quarantined doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Noom also connects you with a personally assigned goal specialist and a community of other Noomers so that you have all the support you need. Small steps make big progress, even if they are only around your living room. Sign up for your trial today at noom.com slash mm. What do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash mm to start your trial today. That's noom.com slash mm. If you're looking for a little excitement while you're social distancing, Dipsy can help you get in the mood. No date required. Dipsy is an audio app full of short, sexy stories and guided sessions that are designed to turn you on and help you get through quarantine. These relatable and immersive stories will make you feel like you're right there, whoever and whatever you're into. Whether you're a voyeur into BDSM, gay, straight, or lucky enough to be quarantined in a couple right now, Dipsy has something for everyone. Find stories about a spontaneous hookup with a hot stranger, getting tied up, or listen to the receiving end of a sexy long-distance phone call. They even have serialized stories to help you get through the long haul. And the best thing about Dipsy is that they add new content every week, so the well will never run dry. For Murder Minute listeners, Dipsy is now offering a 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash mm. 
That's a 30-day free trial when you go to dipseastories.com slash mm. Turn off the TV, take a break from social media, and turn on with Dipsy at dipsystories.com slash mm. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, what happened to Michelle Young? Tiny footprints made of blood dotted the carpet, a sign no loved one or investigator would soon forget. They were left by two-and-a-half-year-old Cassidy Young and led into the master bedroom where her mother, Michelle, lay dead. It would be easy to assume her husband, Jason, was involved, given statistics around domestic violence and murder. But he was away on a business trip at the time. So who took this young mother's life? Michelle Marie Fisher was born in Long Island, New York. The area known for its beaches and easy access to Manhattan was far more than Big Apple adjacent to Michelle. For her, Long Island was home, where she grew up in a loving family, became a cheerleader during high school, and invested just as much enthusiasm into academics, maintaining straight A's. Michelle loved socializing, her friends told reporters, and making sure her friends had a great time. Once she entered college at North Carolina State, men she dated seemed as goal-oriented and driven as she was, except, that is, for Jason Young, a fellow student who grew up in the state's mountains and spent much of his time watching sports, partying, and flirting his way to hookups. Maybe that was part of the attraction, the yin and yang of opposites attracting. The pair met in 2001 and said their I do's in 2003, first at a civil ceremony over the summer, then with a traditional wedding that fall. If the courtship seems a bit hurried, that's because it was. Michelle learned she was pregnant while they were living together. And although she believed Jason was the one, he showed no interest in marriage. She hoped the news might change his mind. At first, he seemed horrified by all of it, marriage and fatherhood. But gradually, his views shifted. Not long after the traditional wedding, Michelle took a position as a financial specialist at a Fortune 500 company, doing work she found gratifying. Meanwhile, Jason worked in sales for a medical software company. The following March 29th, Cassidy was born by C-section. Immediately, both parents were smitten by the full of smiles little girl. Michelle loved little more than caring for her. And the next year, they invested in their dream home. Many things seemed to be going well for the family from the outside. But the couple struggled. In the true crime book, Murder on Birchleaf Drive, attorney Steve Epstein explored Michelle's murder case at length, conducting research by pouring through more than 8,000 pages of court transcripts and 100 hours of trial videos, and described the tumult. Although they didn't fully appreciate it at the time, he wrote, both their engagement and their marriage had been constructed upon a foundation of unexpected circumstance rather than genuine love and commitment. Before they were married, he said, Michelle's mother, Linda, who found Jason to be extremely immature, took him aside and told him not to marry Michelle if he didn't love her, adding, she'll survive. Their first brush with death as a couple happened on the road, when they were expecting their second child. Jason lost control of their SUV, 
causing it to veer off the street and drop 100 feet down into an embankment, landing in a river. Both adults walked away without any serious injuries, but the baby died. A couple of months later, Michelle became pregnant again. They planned to name the baby Rylan. All this time, Linda worried about her son-in-law's influence on Michelle and potential hurt he might cause her. Meanwhile, Jason found Linda to be nosy and over-involved in their lives, especially when she moved into their home temporarily to help care for Cassidy. Linda disliked that he spent most evenings at softball games rather than at home with his family, and Jason perpetually felt judged. Michelle's sister Meredith, a graduate student in counseling, often functioned as a mediator when the couple fought. I felt like their problem had escalated at that point and they needed to see a professional, Meredith would later testify. But I felt it was a good stepping stone for them, hopefully, to continue on to professional. Sadly, she noted, there was never any resolution and they never learned to discuss matters in a productive way. It was like a high school relationship when it came to learning how to argue and try to resolve things, she said. The fight would start about picking up the kitchen and it would escalate into 10 other issues. In addition to conflicts about the home and Linda, who Michelle remained very close to, they argued over Jason's perceived lack of sex in the marriage. According to Epstein's book, Jason's attempts at intimacy were more vulgar than romantic, the opposite of the romance Michelle craved. He would ask if she wanted a hot beef injection, as though that were a turn-on. And the more he pressured her for sex in these ways, the less she wanted closeness. At one point, Jason told Meredith he wanted to throw in the flag on the marriage and get divorced. Michelle might have considered parting ways too, but she grew up dealing with negative effects of divorce and didn't want the same for Cassidy. At the end of the last lengthy counseling session the couple would have with Meredith, Jason said, This would all go away if you would just let me have a girl on the side. Soon after, on the evening of November 2nd, 2006, Meredith returned a call from Jason on her way home from work. He said he was driving to the Virginia mountains for a business trip, and he and Michelle had yet another argument. The next evening, he left Meredith another voicemail, asking her for a favor unrelated to the bickering, which surprised Meredith. He kind of screwed up the night before, he said. He had been looking up coach purses on eBay with hopes of surprising Michelle with one for their third anniversary and left printouts that would give it all away on the printer. I'm actually going to my parents' house tonight because I'm so far west, he said, adding that he had been having horrible phone reception. He thought the gift would be nice for her and please his mother-in-law, too. Meredith could try calling him back, he said, but his phone was doing weird things. So Meredith drove to Jason and Michelle's home early the next afternoon. Right away, something seemed off. The lanterns along the driveway used only at night were glimmering in the daylight, and the backyard gate stood open, meaning that the couple's black lab, Mr. Garrison, could have escaped or not been let out to roam in the yard as he often did. Meredith let herself into the garage through a broken door, finding Michelle's car. Why wasn't she at work? Entering the kitchen, she saw her sister's purse and keys on the counter. She called Michelle's name to no response. 
The house felt cold as she walked, according to court records. And while she could hear Mr. Garrison's whimpers, she didn't see him. Moving toward the staircase, she spotted what she thought was red hair dye at the top. She climbed up and glanced to her left, where she saw Michelle on the floor in a pool of blood. As she dialed 911, Cassidy lifted up the covers, stared at her, then moved over and clung to her. I think my sister's dead, Meredith told the operator. In the background, you can hear Cassidy's voice. She's got boo-boos everywhere. Paramedics and police arrived to find 29-year-old Michelle face down on the floor near her bed, dressed in sweats. She had been beaten 30 or more times in the head. Blows a medical examiner would link with heavy blunt object trauma. Her injuries included a fractured skull, a broken jaw, lacerations, abrasions, brain hemorrhaging, and dislodged teeth. The blood surrounding Michelle was dried and coagulated. Matching spatters colored the walls. Her body was stiff and cold. There was no evidence of sexual assault, and she was about 20 weeks pregnant. Cassidy, dressed in pink fleece pajamas, appeared uninjured and clean. Though she had been left to fend for herself for some time, she hadn't soiled herself. Given that Jason was away on a business trip and his hotel stay was verified with receipts, he wasn't considered a suspect, at least not officially. Investigators did want to determine whether there was any chance he could have played a role, however. Numerous issues raised questions. Just three months before Michelle's murder, Jason took out a $1 million life insurance policy in her name and listed him as the beneficiary. They definitely wanted to ask him about that. In addition, there were no signs of forced entry at the home, and two drops of what seemed to be blood were found on their Ford Explorer. Then there were the eBay documents. Why did he ask Meredith to retrieve them that day, after they had been sitting beside the printer for over 15 hours, and he planned to return home that evening. Police tried to talk to Jason about all of these matters, but he refused to comply. Investigators took an even closer look at Jason once they learned he hadn't been waiting for Michelle's permission to have sex with other women. Records indicated he had been having an affair with another Michelle, Michelle Money, his wife's close friend and former sorority sister. He and Money contacted each other 980 times the month leading up to the murder and 51 times the day before. In April 2007, a new lead detective, Sergeant Spivey, took a fresh look at the case and the gathered evidence. While sorting through images of Cassidy's bedroom, he spotted a plastic bottle beside a medicine dropper on a shelf. Zooming in, he read the bottle's label, Tylenol Extra Strength Adult Rapid Blast. It was full of a red liquid. On the shelf below, he saw a bottle labeled Pankoff PD, a strong adult cough medicine that Jason's former employer manufactured. One of its ingredients is known to cause sleepiness and dizziness. With a bit more digging, Spivey learned that Jason had been supplied with over 1,000 samples of the drug during his years at the company and received in-depth training on its side effects. 
and Cassidy's DNA was found on the medicine dropper. No wonder she hadn't made more of a mess during her time alone after Michelle's murder. She was likely medicated to sleep. The eBay printout timing also raised suspicion around Jason. He had printed the pages minutes before leaving on a business trip, which to investigators made it seem like a prop. Then there were emails between Jason and his wife. In one, dated July 12, 2006, he wrote, I am in a mood that makes our trip to Myrtle seem mild. Pray the beer kicks in. I could kill you for not letting me finish the yard this morning. He goes on and on with complaints and escalating frustration about his mother-in-law. In Michelle's responses, she mentioned compromises around matters of tension, such as how often her mother could visit. She also expressed desire to make time for date nights and quality time together. While she wanted to salvage the relationship, Jason seemed livid and desperate. Just a few months later, amid screaming matches between the spouses, Jason wrote a romantic email to his ex-fiancee, Genevieve Jacobs, saying he had only outwardly moved on from her, but his soul never did. His words were full of regret and longing. His internet searches were even more telling, including phrases like anatomy of a knockout and head trauma knockout. At first, a shoe print found at the scene seemed to indicate he wasn't involved because his size 12 feet were a full two sizes smaller than the print. But store records showed that Jason had purchased a pair of size 12 hush puppies, the brand they linked with the evidence. Finally, in December 2009, three years after Michelle's murder, Jason was arrested and charged with the crime. During those three years, custody and visitation battles regarding Cassidy prompted a civil case, filed by Linda and Meredith, who remained convinced that Jason killed Michelle. Jason failed to respond, so Michelle's family won by default. They were awarded $15.6 million in damages. The money doesn't mean anything, Michelle's close friend Jennifer Powers told ABC News at the time. It's all about justice for Michelle. Finally, with a criminal trial upcoming, they hoped for even more justice. In addition to other circumstantial evidence, the emails, the affair, the medication, the shoe print, prosecutors argued that Jason Young's alibi was a facade. Yes, he had crossed state lines and checked into a hotel, they said, but he left through an emergency exit door shortly after arriving, propped the door open, and used a key card to get back in after the murder. Security cameras had been conveniently unplugged at the time. A cashier at a gas station about 120 miles from Raleigh testified that she interacted with Young very early the morning of the murder, which put him on the road at the time that made his direct involvement possible. Young had sworn he was asleep in his hotel room then. The clerk admitted to having occasional memory problems, but said the man had made an indelible impression on her that remained clear. Young pleaded not guilty, and his defense team argued that while he was obviously not a good husband and made mistakes, he was not a killer. And there was no physical evidence proving otherwise. There is no question that he has acted like an obnoxious, juvenile jerk, his attorney said in his opening remarks. 
But what you have to remember, ladies and gentlemen, is that we don't convict people of murder because they acted like jerks. Young even took the stand to testify on his own behalf. After 11 days of testimony and 48 witness accounts, the jury deliberated for 12 hours, unable to reach a unanimous decision. The jury was hung, 8-4, in favor of acquittal, and the judge declared a mistrial. Young was released from jail after his mother paid a $900,000 bond and a new trial was put in motion, which started about seven months later. On the stand, Linda Fisher burst into tears, speaking of her daughter. She deserved to live, she said. She had so much to offer. There was so much about Michelle. She was an NC State cheerleader. She had that pep, that energy, that vivaciousness. She loved life, and he took it away from her just took it away from her. The new jury found Jason Young guilty of first-degree murder. A later appeal was denied, and he will live the rest of his life in prison. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.